in June of 2020, when the George Floyd riots were taking place, as they are now called, in the state of Wisconsin, there's an interesting story about how it is that a statue was toppled in the name of justice. Of course, all of these riots were sought out and manifested in the name of justice. And I know that you remember the images on TV of all these riots where all these different statues were taken down, again, supposedly as an act of social justice. But in this particular case of this statue that was toppled in the state of Wisconsin, the statue in question was a statue that was erected in, in the honor and memory of a man by the name of Hans Christian Haig. The irony of this particular situation is as follows. Haig was an abolitionist, an anti-slavery activist who died in battle fighting alongside Union soldiers during the American Civil War. An abolitionist who gave up his life for the cause of ending slavery. And yet here were these rioters who were carrying on as they were in the name of justice, toppling statues and taking down this particular statue of Hans Christian Haig. The angry mob was so filled with rage that they ended up taking his statue. They weren't satisfied just with the act of toppling the statue, but they ended up beheading the statue and throwing the head of the statue into a river. The head was never recovered in an effort to rebuild and restructure the statue and restore it. They actually had to reconstitute and rebuild a new head for the statue. The total cost of this entire procedure was roughly $30,000. When you look at all this, you have to say to yourself, what was that all about? Because really, it, it is more than ironic, it's disturbing. Here's a man who gave up his life in the cause of ending slavery, and yet, supposedly, in the name of justice, this was supposed to be an act of social justice. Well, brethren, I would suggest to you that things like this are opportunities for us to learn about the world in which we live. In a sense, the world in which we live is pretty much upside down. Standards of justice are now defined by human terms rather than the justice of God. Remember, justice is solely defined by God because God himself is by nature just. And if we ever try to define any standard of justice apart from him, we will fail to understand what true justice is. We live in a society that is basically the product of the self-esteem movement, or we might call it experiment. In prior decades, generations were told that they need to esteem themselves, love themselves, make themselves the highest priority of things. But this is a very dangerous tendency. And I say this because the Apostle Paul warned Timothy about what it would be like in the final days, in the last days, he says, in the last days, men will be lovers of self. That's the first thing that he identifies in the long list of sins that men will be committed to. 
Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, philadenoi, hedonists, basically, rather than lovers of God. And then it says this, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. The society in which we live is a society that has taken the foremost commandment of Christ and turned it on its head. Rather than loving God first, we're told to love ourselves first as our highest priority. And that vile ideology has produced an entire generation of people who are indeed preoccupied with themselves. And because of this, they can no longer see the world, world for what it really is. Because they're blinded by the image of themselves as they continue to gaze at themselves and esteem themselves. Narcissism is dangerous. When we're preoccupied with ourselves, everything is transformed. When we're preoccupied with ourselves, we redefine the world around us based upon our own thoughts, opinions, and preferences. And individuals like this, if you offend them, they'll lash out. You've all seen the, and have experienced maybe watching a child, a four-year-old, having a temper tantrum. How much reason and logic is there with a, a four-year-old who is angry and is just lashing out because maybe you took a toy away from them or you said no to them for something that they wanted to have? And what do they do? They just lash out. They rage. They start breaking things. They might take a swing at somebody. Well, we know this experience when we're dealing with children, but when we're dealing with adults, professional victims who are constantly trying to find fault, this is a disturbing thing. But this is the world that we live in. People who believe that they are perpetual victims, they're quite sure that they have a right to engage in all forms of destruction and violence, and even in the worst case, murder, because they believe that this is, in fact, their right to lash out. But brethren, this is the very opposite of Christianity. This is the absolute opposite of Christianity. And the book of Philemon is helping us to think about that reality. Because biblical love is the very reverse of the love that is defined in this world especially self-love, which again is the principal form of love that we see in this world. Paul, in writing to Philemon, appeals to him on the basis of true love, not worldly love, but the love of God. And so in verse 5, he talks about the flourishing love that was within Philemon. In verse 5, he says, I hear of your love and faith. He speaks of his own sense of encouragement in view of that love, where he says, I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love. 
And it's based upon that description of true love that he then makes an appeal for love's sake in verse 9, an appeal that he makes on behalf of Onesimus. Last, Lord Zay, Paul, in making this appeal in verse 18, he says, if he, Onesimus, has wronged you in any way or owes you any, anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, lest I should mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. We talked about last time, Paul stepped in the place of Onesimus and says, listen, if he owes you anything, hey, put it on me. Put it on me. Brethren, this is an imitation of Christ. This is love. This is true love. He's saying, listen, this man, this, this son of mine, who I've begotten in my imprisonment, he is a godly man. He is a man who is dedicated to the gospel. He shares my own heart in this matter. And as a friend of Christ, as a friend of the gospel, I stand in his place. If he owes you anything, charge it to my account. I'll stand in his place as his substitute. That is an imitation of Christ himself who died in our stead. But we have to make sure that we understand what we're talking about. There are many ways in which we can offer up such sacrificial love on behalf of another but we certainly cannot offer our, up ourselves for, for the sins of others. Jesus died as our penal substitute. That's his prerogative alone. But when we talk about this concept of offering up sacrificial love for the good of others, what we're really talking about is the very lesson that Jesus gave to the disciples in John 15 and verse 13 where he says, Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. And then he defines what a friend is. He says, You are my friends if you do what I command you. And I'll return to that in just a moment. But this is what biblical love produces. A sacrifice of self for the good of another. Such love, again, is alien to this world because the way the world defines love is, is that it's all about me. And that's why I've already talked to you about the concept of hedonism, hedone. In hedonism, it's all about you. It's all about your own self-pleasure and gratification. And it's all about doing whatever you need to in order to get that self-satisfaction. But biblical love says, I'll do whatever is necessary for the honor of Christ, for the glory of God, and for the good and benefit of others. That's the foremost commandment, loving God and loving our neighbor. And so Paul, offering himself as a substitute on behalf of Onesimus, did just that. And so brethren, this leads us now to the concluding, I'll call it the concluding appeal that Paul makes when we get to verses 20 and 21. If you have your copy of the scriptures and if, you're turned, if you've turned to the book of Philemon, look with me at verses, uh, well, we're going to read verses 17 through 21. Again, just to capture the context of these appeals, these central appeals that Paul is making to Philemon. Going back to verse 17, he says, in that conditional statement, he says, If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. 
But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention that you owe to me even your own self as well. Then he says this in verse 20. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. Now, these two verses are going to be the focus of our study here this morning. In verse 20, we're going to consider Paul's concluding appeal, where he says, Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. There are really two parts to this concluding appeal. Then he makes this confident declaration about what's going to happen here as a result of Philemon's response. And he says this, having confidence in your obedience, I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. And then after this, we'll just consider some final matters uh, regarding these verses. Again, these are two short verses, but they really, un if we, when we unpack them, they really uncover a great amount of important biblical principles that are essential for us as Christians. So let's look, first of all, at verse 20, where Paul offers this concluding appeal, where he says, yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Then he says, refresh my heart in Christ. Again, this concluding appeal has two parts. The first part is where he says, let me benefit from you in the Lord. This idea of benefits speaks of the idea of someone who's being blessed to receive a favor or to be made joyful for some reason. And I love the way in which J.B. Lightfoot summarizes what Paul is saying here. His paraphrase of this is where Paul is, is said to say, I seem to be entreating for Onesimus, but I am pleading for myself. The favor will be done to me. I'm the real beneficiary in this thing. Treat him as I've appealed to you. Allow me to step in his place and offer myself up on his behalf if it's going to come to that and I'll still be blessed I'll still be joyful if I have to pay the debt so be it but in so doing it will be a joy to do it brother think about that for a moment think about the idea of someone being able to say you know what? I'm going to offer up myself on behalf of another and I'm going to go ahead and take the ding for this the OC something, charge it to my account. I'll pay it. And even in that case, I'll be blessed. How in the world could somebody talk like that? Well, a disciple of Jesus Christ can talk like that and mean it. You know, the Lord himself, in the, in the sacrifice of himself, it says this of, of, of our Lord, it says, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. Our Lord was satisfied in the offering up of himself on our behalf. Why? Because this is love. This is what love produces, the satisfaction of being a benefit to another.
So when Paul says, if it's going to come to my taking the ding for this thing, even in that case, I'll be blessed. Now let me just make this point here, because there's a lot more to say about this expression here. Don't miss, we must not miss, the fact that he says, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Sometimes we come across these expressions and we might read through them and just kind of say, oh yeah, we see this so, many, so often in the scriptures, but this is actually very important. And then in the second part of the appeal, he says, refresh my heart, what? In Christ. One thing we have to understand is this, is that Paul repeatedly uses these expressions of being in him, in Christ, 117 times in the New Testament, in order to communicate the nature of our relationship with God, our relationship with the Lord. We are in Christ. We're no longer on our own uh, being condemned as those who are at enmity with him, but now because of Christ, we are in Christ and he is our identity. We're covered by his righteousness. And our lives are, con con are completely caught up in him. And I think that this is a crucial concept. You know, sometimes we read through the text of scripture, we see familiar expressions in the Bible. We might read through them and just kind of say, yeah, I, yeah in Christ, in, in, in the Lord. Even with hymnals, this is one of the reasons why I stop and have us read the, the verse of a hymn, because it's easy to just see something, read it, and just kind of keep going without stopping and thinking about what you're actually reading or singing. But Paul's frequent references to our being in Christ remind us of the fact that without Christ's righteous covering, we could never have such a relationship with God. In other words, having a relationship with God is synonymous with being in Christ, who is our righteous advocate and priest. We have no standing before the Father apart from being in Christ. And what this means is, is that we have both a position and a conduct that is rooted in this reality of being in Christ. Our position is this. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the, what? Righteousness of God. How does it end? In him. Don't miss that prepositional phrase. It's tiny, but it's everything. That's our position. What about our practice? Well, our practice is also a reality that exists because of our position in Christ. Paul says this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Speaking of the fact that we, we live differently. We walk according to the love of God, not the love as defined by the world now. And that's only because of God. That's only because of his grace. That's why he gets all the glory. Let me benefit from you in the Lord. If it comes down to my taking the ding, if I get to stand in his place as a substitute to help him, I'm still benefited. It'll be my joy to do that. And then he says, refresh my heart in Christ. This is the second part of his appeal. Refresh my heart in Christ. This is the concluding imperative in the epistle. The other two appeals were also imperatives. This is the third and final one. 
here when he says, refresh my heart, it's basically saying, let this, let this opportunity for reconciliation with, with Onesimus, let this take place. Let me be a partaker of this and know this, this will in fact bring rest and joy to me. The very word that he uses here is the same word that Jesus uses when he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest or refreshing. Again, this is a reminder of the fact that again, in Christ we have peace and rest. Apart from him, we can't have any of that. And brethren, I would just say to you, when we contemplate these things, this reminds us of the fact that what we are talking about is the antithesis to what the world embraces and believes. The world says, I want stuff for myself. I want to try to capture peace and rest and have joy on my terms. But the reality is, is that we cannot have true peace if they're going to be on our terms. The only peace and rest that we can actually have is when they're on the terms of the gospel, on the terms of Christ. A world that esteems itself will never know true peace and joy. But to the extent that we as the children of God esteem Christ and herald him, we will experience tr true peace and joy. And brethren, mark this. This'll, this happens even in the midst of persecution and trials. Wednesday night, as we were uh, inaugurating our hymnal, uh, everybody came in and I said, uh, welcome everybody. We're going to sing the entire hymnal tonight. We're, the doors are locked. We've got food and coffee. They kind of looked at me like, okay, just kidding. How many did we do? We did uh, five? Okay, I'm cutting down. So I went from the whole hymnal to five. So, But uh, we... <laughs> We talked about something very important. We talked about, we sang Psalm 1 in our Psalter portion of the hymnal. Psalm 1, that's a great, precious psalm. Because it talks about the blessed man. And how it is that the blessed man avoids the wicked by virtue of his pursuit of the truth. This, it's a very polarizing lesson, but it's basically helping us to understand there's the truth of God and the peace of God, and then there's the way of the wicked, and there is no peace that way. And after reviewing the psalm, we sang that truth back to God. But brethren, we have to understand that in this world that it seems itself, loves itself, is hedonistic in its root form and desire cannot know such peace and rest as only we can in Christ. And as we go through this world, we have to understand that as we uphold the standards of God, we will face opposition and affliction. And yet, even in the midst of that, we're still blessed. So that word in the Hebrew, asherah, we see, we see in the New Testament, in the Beatitudes, again, the word blessed. Blessed. Jesus said, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Stand for Christ, receive persecution, and you know what? You're still blessed. You still have peace. (laughs) And that peace, that joy, that rest, the world cannot take away from us. Brethren, I would say that even in thinking about the manner in which the Lord redeemed me as a young man, I realized that all the things that I learned in my life just had to be eliminated. I didn't have a lot of prior religious experience and training and so forth. I was kind of a blank agnostic uh, slate. And so I, I realized that, that the, the things that I had lear- learned from the world was, uh, was just so contrary to the scriptures. And I had to cast these things aside. But it was a joy to do that. And one of the things that I began to learn and realize is, is that, I, and I continue to learn this, is, is that God ordained that we would be his children And that we would be imitators of Christ. And in so doing, we will become a giving people rather than people who are constantly trying to take and secure things for themselves. And again, this is contrary to nature. Paul, writing to the Philippians, says this, and he's constantly talking about the joy that he has, the joy that he has in hearing about the faith and love of the brethren, the joy that he has uh, hearing about the obedience of the people of God. We need to think that way. When we see people doing well, we need to have joy in their progress. So he says, but I rejoice in, in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. He's writing from prison, of course. I know how to get along with humble means, and I know also how to live in prosperity. In any any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. By the way, that text is so often taken out of context and abused. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself. Listen to the language here. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek the profit which increases to your account. For what? For the joy of giving. Go on. He goes on in the text. He says, but I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphrodites what you have sent. And then he calls their gift a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well pleasing to God. This is what love from above does. It turns us from being selfish hedonists to people who delight in giving up ourselves and giving to others and seeing the joy and the satisfaction of this in the imitation of Christ. 
All giving is to be seen as an act of worship, a service to God that is born out of a heart of love and joy and contentment in the Lord. We see similar language to this in Acts chapter 20, where Paul says this, speaking to the Ephesian elders, he says, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Again, this is exactly what our Savior did. He gave up his own life. He gave the ultimate gift, the ultimate sacrifice for our salvation. So Paul, in his instructions to Philemon, in his appeal to Philemon, Brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. It's a benefit to me, even if I have to pay. I'll be refreshed ultimately, but he's going to then issue a summary statement that also is, I think, appealing to Philemon to do something even better than this. I'll stand in, in his way and his, as a substitute. I'll pay the debt if I need to. I'll still be refreshed and benefited. But, but if you forgave the debt, received him back, that too would be a benefit and a blessing. What he is doing here in these verses is he's basically saying to Philemon, you know what, either way, even if I pay the debt or if you just forgive him, it's a win-win situation because... For me to offer myself as a sacrifice on his behalf, that's a blessing. For you to forgive him, ultimately, going beyond even what I'm instructing, it's still a win. Because you're the one who's going to be giving, and you're the one who's going to be blessed in the giving of the forgiveness and, and, and not demanding remuneration from a man who might owe you a great deal of money. Matthew Henry summarizes this interesting win-win possibility he says, Philemon was Paul's son in the faith, yet he entreats him as a brother. Onesimus, a poor slave, yet he solicits for him as if he were seeking some great thing for himself. Yea, brother, O oh, my brother, let me have joy in thee in the Lord. Thou knowest that I am now a prisoner for the Lord, for his sake and cause, and need all the comfort and support that my friends in Christ can give me. Now this will be a joy to me. I ha shall have joy in thee in the Lord as seeing such an evidence and fruit of thy own Christian faith and love, and on Onesimus' account, who thereby will be relieved and encouraged. Let me benefit from you and the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Let me minister to this man on his behalf. But then he says this in verse 21. Having confidence in your obedience, 
I write to you since I know that you will do even more than what I say. It doesn't say what this is. We're left, to, you know, it's interesting reading commentaries on this. You're left to wonder what this ultimately leads to. Now, I'm of the opinion that this is really a, an appeal to Philemon to emancipate Onesimus. Not only forgive the debt, just free him. Now, again, I, that's an inferential thought, so I don't want to preach the white spaces of Scripture here. But Paul, in a sense, ends the epistle as he began it with an assessment of Philemon's progress of faith and love, his obedience to Christ, and his appointed messengers. And so he says, I write to you with two participles. He says, I have this confidence in you, in your obedience. In other words, I've, I've talked about the faith and love and the progress that I've seen in you. I have ongoing confidence in your obedience and therefore I know or am knowing that you will do more than what I say. You know what's amazing about this statement of confidence in Philemon is this. There are men of whom Paul wrote and churches of whom, to whom he wrote whereby he could speak with this degree of confidence. And then there were some occasions and some churches where he could not speak with such confidence. And what was the difference? The difference was godliness versus ungodliness. Paul had to issue some of the strongest rebukes of the church at Corinth. It's really stunning when you go through and summarize all the rebukes, all the moments in which he had to expose their sin and, and, and appeal to them to return to Christ in the 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says this. He says, I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I, might, I may find you not to be what I wish and may be found by you to be not what you wish, that perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossip, arrogance, disturbances. I am afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you, and I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Now that's sad to have to say that, but what a contrast that is for him to write to Philemon and say, brother, I know you. I know the progress that you make. I know of your faith and love, and I know, I know. I have confidence that you'll even do more than what I say. Imagine being Philemon, reading this and saying, how much more? <laughs> well, again, that's why I say to you, emancipation, the emancipation of Onesimus would have been the ultimate gift. And that's why I would suggest the vague nature of this appeal points to the ultimate gift of saying, you're free. I'm, I'm not only going to forgive the money you owe me, but you're a free man now. Because Paul already expressed a desire to co-labor with this man, and that would, in fact, be the ultimate gift both to Onesimus and to Paul, but it ultimately be, would be a gift unto the Lord, right? A fragrant aroma unto him. Brethren, this is the lesson that our Savior taught. 
Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Let me just say one thing here. I think Facebook has ruined our understanding. It's not just Facebook. But Facebook has helped to ruin our understanding of the word friend. Folks, I've got friends on Facebook I don't even know. And I probably still have some friends on Facebook who are probably my enemies. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't keep up with my social media accounts, and so who knows? But we have to understand that in the English language, we use the word friend like just for about anything. I, I mean, it, categorically, we really don't have good details sometimes in the English language. But remember, as I just said, Jesus defined what it means to be a friend, his friend, and he said, you are my friends if, here, here we go with the word if again, let me preach the word if, if you do what I command you. And there he uses the word philone, philone, from the word philos. We speak of the idea of love, agape love is the principal word that is used to speak of love, God's redemptive love and the love of God. But philos is also another term that we use, and it is also a term that speaks of the relational nature of, that you would have with a, a friend, a genuine friend, a real friend. Why do I bring this up? Remember, when Judas came to betray Christ, you remember that he referred to him, and our English translations use the word friend. And that's confusing, because it's not the word philon or philoi, it's, it's the word hetire. Not the same word. You might call a, an acquaintance that you meet off the street hetire, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're a friend. You might meet somebody off the street, you know nothing about them. They could be the, an enemy of Christ. They could be like me before the Lord saved me. You wouldn't call them a friend, as in philoi, but you would refer to me as hetire, acquaintance, because Judas was not a friend of God. He was not a genuine friend of Christ. So what's the difference? The difference is being a disciple or not being a disciple. Judas was a son of perdition, and that's the big difference. Philemon was a genuine friend. He was a friend in the gospel. Onesimus was a genuine friend because he was a friend in the gospel, sharing the, the priorities that we call Christian priorities. And we really need to define these things lest we end up confusing what it means to be a friend. One commentator says this, when Paul says that he was confident that Philemon would do more than what he said, he said, this may be an, an intimation that Paul would like Onesimus set free from enslavement. He hints that Onesimus be loaned to him. Only emancipation could be beyond that. Paul never directly assaults the social and economic institutions of his day, yet he clearly perceives in Christianity an ethic that reaches beyond human social 
institutions. I do believe that it's emancipation that he has in mind when he says, I'm confident you're going to do more than what I say. This is love. This is true friendship in the gospel. Brethren, as we go through life, we need to think clearly and carefully about these simple words that we throw around all the time, like the words love and friend. Because if we're not careful, we might trample underfoot the important biblical definitions that are before us and fail to realize the importance of these distinctions. As I said before, the world says, esteem yourself, love yourself, seek your own self-preservation. You know, I think one of the greatest diseases that we have as human beings is this, this attitude of saying the most important thing for me is to preserve my own self, my own safety, my own life. And here's why. And this is going to be my concluding appeal to you here this morning. Turn with me to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. We're thinking now about the implications of what we've studied here this morning. Paul called the elders at Ephesus in order to visit with him before he would depart for Jerusalem. And he says this in verse 22 of Acts chapter 20. He says, and now behold, bound in spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. Now, stop right there for a moment. If you knew that you were going to go into a city and you knew that bonds and afflictions would await you, what would be the temptation that would erupt within your flesh? Yeah, yeah, maybe I won't go there. <laughs> maybe there's another spot I can go to. But Paul loved Christ. And this is how much he loved the Savior. And brethren, mark the detail of the language here. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Notice the relationship between these two statements. A. I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. I'm not cherishing and holding on to my life. And how important is that, Paul? Why is this such an important thing? Here's the henna clause. In order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus. Translated, what he's saying is, is that there's no way I'd finish my ministry if I were a man who sought my own self-preservation. If I lived out my life just trying to avoid this conflict and that affliction and this persecution and all these things that are around me, if I lived my life trying to preserve my life and seek my own safety, I would just live in this cocoon of fear. 
and I would never do what the Lord has called me to do. Brethren, hedonism says protect yourself. It's all about you. Preserve your own self, your own life, your own desires, your own pleasures. Live for yourself. Paul says, that's not what I am. I'm a child of God now. And my life is not my own. And so now I live for the glory of the one who redeemed me. This is what it means when Jesus says, defining what it means to be a friend of his, a disciple of his, when he says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And following Jesus and taking up our cross means living a life not of self-preservation, but of self-sacrifice and giving because that's what love produces. And brethren, I would say, it is a preservation to our hearts and souls that we not spend our time talking about and thinking about our value and worth, but that we think about the worth and the value, the inestimable value of Christ. That's it. The more we focus on ourselves and esteem ourselves and talk, think about how worthy we are, that is a destruction to our spiritual life. But mark this, we're going to spend eternity declaring the worthiness of God. May we practice well here because that's our future. Thou art worthy. Let's stand.